everybody. Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, we closed last week with the challenge to spend time every day this past week alone with God and to rewrite Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 as a prayer in our own words to God. And I do hope you were able to practice that this week. And I hope that you continue to practice those things moving forward because we are going to see that in the second half of verse 2, there is a huge benefit that comes with being transformed by God's truth. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I am a planner. I want to know what the plan is at all times. I want to draw up the blueprints for my life and move the puzzle pieces around until I can see the logical progression from where I am to where I want to be in the future. This summer, we drove down to the Outer Banks in North Carolina, and living up to the stereotype, my son asked us when we were about 15 minutes into the drive, are we almost there? And I said, oh, buddy, not even close. And I don't know what it says about us as parents that our children measure travel distances in movies. I am hoping I'm not alone in this. So our answer to him was, we're not going to be there for about three and a half movies. But <laughs> and he said, oh, that's forever. But we want to know. We want to know how long the road is going to be. How long is this going to take? How close are we to our destination? We want to know the future. And that's why the psychic industry is a $2 billion industry. And so it's only natural for us as Christians to want to know what God's will is for our lives. So for many of us, we're wondering if we should step into a new business venture or marry that guy or move across the country or take that job or get that degree or have another child or adopt a child or foster a child. We want to know, God, what is your will for my life? What is the plan? And so if you're in that situation, verse two sounds really good to us. Then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when we hear that phrase, God's will, our minds do often jump to sort of the big milestone things of life. And I do believe that those big things are a part of God's will. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a couple minutes. But God's will for our lives is not just about those big milestone moments. His will for us is more about who we become than about what we do. And I know that sounds like it just came straight off of a Hallmark card, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says in another letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. 
It's God's will that you should be sanctified. And then Paul goes on to give some really specific examples of what that looks like. He says it would look like you living a life that is sexually pure. It looks like being someone who doesn't take advantage of other people, but treats people with fairness and kindness and respect. You'll be someone who loves others well. You're someone who works hard in their career. And he says you'll become someone who lives a quiet life. And I think that could be translated to being someone who doesn't have time for any drama. You're not a drama queen. You're living a quiet, peaceful life. See, what I think is so sad in, in my life, and I think in a lot of our lives, is when we think about God's will, we get so caught up in thinking about the big destinations that we're hoping God will take us to, that we sometimes lose sight of the everyday acts of obedience where God is calling us to follow him, and he has something for us that day that we are just completely missing. And so for some of us, we spend so much time thinking about our long-term financial goals, you know, how we want to retire and sort of what we want that season of our lives to look like. But we neglect to honor God with our finances now. We're not tithing. We're living outside of our means. We're going into debt. We're not honoring God with the daily decisions of our finances now. For those of you here who are single and longing to be married someday, are you honoring God with your dating life? Are you asking him, should I be dating this guy or not? Are you honoring him with your purity? Many of us want to make career changes. We feel dissatisfied in the job that we have, and we're looking to God and asking him, what do you have for me in the future? Where am I supposed to be? Are we honoring him every day where we show up at the job that we don't love? Are you working hard? Are you working with integrity? Are you honoring him with daily obedience? And here's the thing, we don't honor God with our daily obedience to sort of like manipulate him into giving us the end destination that we want. This isn't some list with boxes to check, and so if you do all the right things every day, you're going to get to the destination you want. No, remember, we honor him with those little things because that's what the Apostle Paul told us worship really looks like. It's offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, and that's something that takes place on a daily basis. It's a daily surrender, and that gradually transforms us from the inside out, and our hearts and our minds overflow into our behavior. And that is ultimately God's will for us. As Paul says, his will is that we would be sanctified. I don't know if you remember, but last week we talked about how Paul says he refers to it as the pattern of this world because it's a pattern. The ways of this world always lead to death. They lead to pain and brokenness. God's ways always lead to life. And so he's calling us into his will because he loves us. And he knows that his will is the best way. His ways are the best ways. And so his will is that we be sanctified. And that is a continual process every day being transformed by his truth. And so I want to ask you, is there an area of your life where you're struggling to really give God control? Have you been sensing the last few weeks that there is a daily surrender that he's calling you to make? When Ben and I first got married, we were faithful tithers. We both had salary jobs, and so it was easy enough to set aside 10% of our income and give to our local church. But then we went through a pretty big transition. We moved over to this area, and we got different jobs, and our income became very um, inconsistent, irregular. Every month was a different financial situation. And we were pinching pennies in that season of life. We were trying to figure out what God was calling to us to and where. We were living in an in-law suite in a relative's house. 
And so every month we were looking very carefully at the numbers and we never made a, a conscious decision to do this, but we just neglected to tithe and never really talked about it. But over six months went by without us tithing. And one day, Ben was reading actually in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 27. And I know you're all thinking, I cannot believe what is the what a coincidence. I was reading that this morning <laughs> before I came. Isn't that great when it just lines up like that? He was reading in Leviticus, and he read this passage that neither of us were very familiar with about how God told the Israelites that if they needed to, from time to time, they could redeem their tithe. And that meant that instead of taking their full tithe to the temple, they could keep and use part of it, but then they did need to ultimately bring it with 20% interest on top. And I was like, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I... I don't remember that. And Ben said, I feel like we are supposed to calculate the tithe that we have not given for this chunk of time and add 20% to it. And you guys are probably thinking what I was thinking, which is, no, 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 sweet Ben. That's the old law. That doesn't apply to us anymore. We live under grace and freedom, so we can just start tithing now and tell God we love him and trust him. And Ben said, well, let's, let's think about it. Let's pray about it. So we did, but we also calculated what that number would be and realized it was almost exactly everything we had in the bank. And the thing is, we did write that check, and writing that check was really hard. But Ben and I will both tell you that from that moment on, there was a significant change in our relationship with God as it related to our finances. Because God wasn't just trying to push the law on us or make us suffer. He was showing us his ways are the best ways. And he wanted to prove to us that he could do more with 90% of our income than we could do with 100% of our income. And from that day on, he has continued to prove that to us again and again and again. And that day, that decision over a decade ago has shaped our journey with God, with our finances. And I, I could seriously sit down and have coffee with any one of you and tell you for hours all the ways that we have seen God miraculously provide for our needs financially since that time. He led us to take FPU with Dave Ramsey, and that completely revolutionized our view of our finances. He helped us get debt-free and then remain debt-free. He miraculously made it possible for us to buy our house, which is a story that's its own coffee date in there. And there were so many moments, so many months, where we didn't know how things were going to exactly work out, and he provided exactly what we needed. One specific example, we were preparing to buy a minivan because we were having our third child, and we had gotten debt-free, and we did not want to go into debt for this van, so we were saving like crazy. We were selling everything that was not nailed down in our house. So I was selling stuff on Craigslist. We were trying to scrape together as much cash as we could. And we were feeling like the clock was ticking and maybe we weren't going to make it to that goal in time. And then someone at church handed us an anonymous envelope with $1,000 cash in it. And I don't know why God chose to provide for us in those beautiful ways, but I do know that back over 10 years ago, he was calling us to take a step of daily obedience to him 
that communicated, God, I trust you. I trust your ways more than my own. Take this part of my life. God's will is often about the big destinations, but I think it's even more often about the daily decisions that we make. But I do believe that God's will is sometimes something very specific. I do think he may call you to a specific place or vocation or ministry or person to marry. And that is often the type of God's will that many of us are really looking for. We want answers about our career, marriage, geography, children. And Paul, I believe, understood that tension of trying to decipher God's will for your life. See, Paul only uses this phrase, God's will, two other times in the book of Romans, and both times he's talking about a specific destination. The first time he uses this phrase is right in the beginning in chapter 1 when he says in verses 9 and 10, he's saying to the church in Rome, constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. And then he revisits that same idea at the end of the letter in chapter 15. He tells them that he's getting ready to travel to Jerusalem. He's asking them to pray for him. And he says in verse 32, pray for me so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. See, Paul had a very clear sense that he was supposed to travel to Rome to preach there and encourage the Roman believers. Now I want to encourage you to do this this week. I want you to go look at the last six chapters of the book of Acts because there you will read about the path that Paul took from the time he wrote those words to the Romans to actually arriving in Rome. And so I'm going to give you a quick overview, a quick summary, and you're going to see that the road to Rome was a wild and crazy ride. See, after Paul wrote this letter, he did what he said in Romans 15. He traveled to Jerusalem to deliver a gift to the churches there. While he's in Jerusalem, he's arrested, put in prison, and then put on trial. From his trial in Jerusalem, he's transferred to Caesarea, narrowly avoiding an assassination attempt. In Caesarea, he's put on trial again before Governor Felix, and he leaves Paul in prison for two years and only calls on him from time to time just because he thinks it's amusing to talk to him. Paul sits in prison for two years. Then Felix retires and hands over the governor role to Festus, and Paul is still in prison. He decides to leave him in there. So then Paul goes on trial again, and these trials are a mess. They're bringing in different leaders and officials. The Sanhedrin is there, the leaders of the Jewish people. They all want Paul killed. They're trying to scheme and plan to get him killed. He has to stand before a king, King Agrippa, and testify. He's allowed to share what he believes and preach to all these people in every one of these trials. And finally, Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, these trials have been a huge mess. I appeal to the highest court in Rome, to Caesar. And Festus says, okay, to Caesar you will go then. And then the story gets even crazier because Paul and a bunch of other prisoners are put with a centurion on a boat to sail for Rome. But it's not a quick and easy little boat ride. Instead, Paul senses that they are going to face a lot of danger. And in Acts 27, he says, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion doesn't listen to Paul and instead follows the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. They sail around the island of Crete and hit a huge storm, and everyone is convinced we are absolutely going to die here in the middle of the sea. 
And Paul says, no, we're actually not going to. I had a dream last night, and God told me that I am going to end up in Rome, and he's giving me all of your lives as a gift, so no one is going to die. But this ship is donezo. This ship is not going to make it. And that's exactly what happens. They keep sailing, and they run aground on an island called Malta. I mean, is this not a crazy, crazy journey so far? It gets even crazier. They arrive in Malta, and the islanders are very kind there. It's raining and cold, and so they start helping them build a fire. And Paul is helping to build the fire, and a snake, drawn out by the heat, comes out of the fire and bites Paul on the hand. And it's hanging off of his hand. And all the islanders say, oh, man, this guy is clearly a murderer, and he did something terribly wrong, and he escaped the sea, but Lady Justice has caught up with him. He is going to die from the snake bite. Paul shakes the snake off and shows no symptoms. And so the islanders all change their tune. They go, oh, no, I guess he's not being punished by the gods. He actually is a god. We need to worship this guy. Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what it's all about. They take him to the chief official of that whole island where Paul notices that that chief official's father is sick in bed with a fever and dysentery. He heals him. All the people from the whole island come to hear Paul preach the good news of the gospel and heal them of their diseases. And then they get a new boat and then they sail and they go from port to port to port. And then eventually they're in Italy and they take the road to Rome. And Paul ends up, as he knew was God's will, finally in Rome. And even in Rome, Paul ends up under house arrest, but we read in Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. See, God showed Paul that he intended for Paul to go to Rome, but I bet Paul had no idea what that road would really look like. And I think that's true for you and me. See, sometimes we can feel like God is keeping his plans a secret from us, like he's trying to trick us or hold out on us. But I believe he's giving us just the right amount of information, and he's asking us to trust him with all the unknowns along the way. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to India, and one of the things that we were able to do was visit some of the remote villages in southern India and share the good news about Jesus with them, share our own personal testimonies with the people there. And one particular day, I was walking through one of these villages with my translator, and we noticed that on the far side of a field was a group of workers who were taking a break from their work in the shade of a tree. It was a few hundred yards away. And my translator asked, do you want to go over there and share with them? And I said, sure, sounds good. So we made the long walk over there, and it was a great time. The people were really kind and wonderful, offered us water, and we talked with them for a while. We were able to share with them and pray with them at the end. And then we were getting ready to leave to walk back to the village, and one of the gentlemen in the group said something to my translator while pointing at me and sort of laughing a little bit. Then my translator responded and also kind of laughed a little bit, and we said our goodbyes, and we started walking away. And once we got far enough away, I was like, what was that guy saying about me? And he said, oh, it's not a big deal. He just said, make sure the little American girl knows not to step on any cobra holes. <laughs> uh, excuse me, I said? Cobra holes? 
And he reminded me that in the Hindu faith, they view snakes as sacred, so they do not kill them. They let them live wherever they want. And he said, do you want to know what a cobra hole looks like? And I said, sure. And he pointed to a hole in the ground about five feet from us. And then I looked up at the field that we had to walk across to get back to the village and saw dozens of those holes everywhere. And I was frozen for a second, but eventually we made our way across. And you know, our walk back to the village was very different from our walk out to that shaded tree area. See, if I had known those things were peppered all across that field before going out there, when he had asked me, do you want to go over there and share with that group of people in the shade? I probably would have squinted and said, oh, no, I think they're already Christians. <laughs> I mean, if I'm being totally honest, if I knew what I was going to be walking around, what the path was really going to look like, all of the details, I might not have gone. See, this is just my opinion. But I think sometimes God withholds information from us out of his supreme wisdom and love for us. I don't think he's holding out on us. I don't think he's trying to trick us. I believe he loves us. And I do believe he is trustworthy. See, he told Paul that his will was for him to visit Rome, but he didn't tell him every detail of the path. Instead, he called Paul to follow him one day at a time, one step at a time in obedience and trust. And yes, Paul's road was a crazy road from Jerusalem to Rome. And it was filled with some pain and hardship, but in all of it, he preached the good news of Jesus, and he had the opportunity to do that in front of governors and kings, in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of all of the people, and then to eventually do it in Rome, and even to people on a remote island. And in all of that, he brought glory to God through his everyday obedience. See, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. His will for our lives is good, and it's both the daily decisions and the big destinations. His will is all of it, and they're both made possible by the daily transformation that takes place when we go to God, we listen to his voice, and then we respond in obedience in the everyday things. And I, I believe this is really important for us to marinate in this this week, because starting next week in our series... Paul is going to start to get really specific about what that everyday obedience will look like in different areas of our lives. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Our temptation could be to try to look at it as a checklist of the things that we're supposed to do. But Paul is reminding us here that true worship is bringing our lives to God and saying, you have control over all of it. I trust you transform me from the inside out so that our obedience, our behavior would be an outflowing of the transformation that's happened inside. And that in that process, we get to see and participate in God's will for our lives, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's pray. God, thank you that your will is good 
and pleasing and perfect. Sometimes, God, we struggle to trust you because we are longing for a specific destination that we want to know if you have that for us, if it is going to be part of our future. And we struggle, God, to trust you in the acts of daily obedience where we sense that you might be calling us to to do something or to stop doing something. And we don't know why. We want to argue with you in our hearts and our minds. Help us to trust you, to trust that your way really is best, that the pattern of this world leads to death every single time and that your ways lead to life every single time. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you are trustworthy, and that you have a good, pleasing, and perfect will that's at work in the world and in our lives. We are grateful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.